be reading this morning from Psalm chapter 105, and I'll read the first six verses. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing to Him, sing psalms to Him, talk of all His wondrous works, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face evermore. Remember His marvelous works which He has done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. O seed of Abraham, His servant, you children of Jacob, His chosen ones. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The most important and highest activity that a company of God's people can ever engage in is to offer Almighty God acceptable worship. These words are from pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'll read them one more time. The most important and highest activity that a company of God's people can ever engage in is to offer Almighty God acceptable worship. Well, on the first Sunday of each month, we take a break from our current preaching schedule and turn our attention to the subject of the church. And this morning, we are directing our attention to the matter of worship. Dr. Lloyd-Jones has said in this quote that the most important thing the church does is to worship our God. And we might think to ourselves, well, The Great Commission doesn't mention worship, does it? It's about missions and evangelism. Isn't that the most important thing the church can do? But as Pastor John Piper has once said, missions exist because worship doesn't. His point is that the whole purpose of missions is to make worshipers. And if everyone in the world were worshipers of Christ, there would no longer be a need for missions. So we might put it this way, the most enduring thing the church can do is worship. Evangelism and missions will cease when Christ returns. When he comes to judge the nations and establish the kingdom in its final glory, there will be no more evangelism, no more missions, but there will be worship. Worship will continue forever. The most enduring thing we can do as a church is to worship our God. Our confession of faith says in chapter 26, which is of the church, in paragraph 5, that those thus called, that is Christians, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. So our confession says that there are two primary purposes of the church, mutual edification of believers and worship of our God. And we'll leave the edification part for another sermon, though I think one of the ways that we are edified together is when we participate together in corporate worship. But this morning, I want us to focus on what worship is, what it involves, how we are to do it. And my thesis for this morning has already been partially stated, but in full it is this. The most enduring activity 
the church does is to worship God by delighting in His glory. Anytime we begin to discuss uh, the nature of the church and what the church does, we will inevitably turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, which is uh, Pentecost happening there in the early church, and, and many would even point at this chapter and say this is when the church was born uh, with Peter's sermon at Pentecost. That may be a bit of an overstatement. Uh, I think we know that the invisible church spread out through time and space includes all those who have believed from Adam till today and into the future. But certainly the New Testament church, the church as we know it under the new covenant was established at this time in Acts 2 uh, and then organized during the life of the apostles. And so I do think that Acts 2 is a good place to turn to learn about what was important to the life of the early church. And, and here is the important passage for our discussion this morning. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." Now, the thing to note here is that the word worship doesn't appear in this passage, and yet we can see a number of things that the church is doing in this passage, and I would argue that these things are and do constitute the church's worship. In verse 42, they dedicate themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching of the apostles. And what are they teaching? They are teaching the Word of God. They are teaching the Old Testament Scriptures and the words of Christ. And they're fellowshipping with one another. In verse 42, and again in verses 44 through 46, they're spending time together, helping one another financially, sharing meals together in their homes. They're observing the ordinances of the church. Baptism in verse 41, and the Lord's Supper in verse 42. In verse 42 there it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. John Stott wrote concerning this verse and says, they devoted themselves literally to the breaking of the bread. Surely this is a reference to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, though probably with a fellowship meal included. So they gave themselves, they devoted themselves to uh, not only the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the saints, but to the ordinances of the church. And they gave themselves to prayer in verse 42 and in verse 46. Verse 46 says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, likely a reference to the daily prayer meetings that were held in the temple at that time. And we can see in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they continued to, to frequent the temple prayer meetings, but also 
gathered privately in their homes as Christians to engage in prayer and fellowship, the ordinances, the teaching of the apostles. And the final thing that we find them doing here is praising God in verse 47, which is likely a reference to the singing of psalms. The book of Psalms is a divinely inspired book of praises, and we know from other examples in the New Testament that they often sang these psalms as they went up to and came back down from the Temple Mount. The book in Hebrew is actually titled Praises. So these five things comprise the church's worship in Acts 2, teaching, fellowship, the ordinances, prayer, and praise through song. As Derek Thomas says, all these aspects of worship require meeting corporately. Now, we might argue that, well, I can pray or I can sing at home. It should be clear, though, from the text that these were part of their corporate worship here in Acts 2. Now, in addition to these aspects of worship, Another one I would call our attention to is if we were to review Romans chapter 1, a familiar passage, it would show that thanksgiving is a massively important element of Christian worship. There, the Apostle Paul identifies two things that the ungodly do not do. He says, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Now, to glorify God is to bring His majesty and His splendor into focus. This is the essence of worship, to to humble ourselves and to make much of Christ, to praise Him for who He is and what He has done. So I think it is entirely appropriate then to turn to the book of Psalms or praises for a primer on worship. And I, I think that's what we have here in the text of Psalm 105. There are a number of things here that the people of God are commanded to do. Charles Spurgeon refers to these as a series of holy exercises. And you'll see that these things are closely aligned with what I have just noted in the book of Acts and Romans. These are all various ways of describing the worship of God's people. They're glorifying Him by the the practice of these holy exercises. I want to briefly look at verse 6 first, and then we'll look at a series of nine commandments expressed in the first five verses. These commands are given to the people named in verse 6. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Now, this psalm was actually written by David and was first introduced on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being brought up to Jerusalem. It's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 16, where it says that David delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Now, Asaph and his brethren were the Levites who led the musical aspects of worship in the tabernacle. And so this is, it's clear that this song was not David's private song of praise, but one that was intended for the corporate use of the congregation led by Asaph and the other Levites. There could be no doubt that David, as he wrote this, had in mind his kindred Israelites there in the nation of Israel. But we also know that all of the scriptures are Christian scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they are all pointing us towards Christ. And we know that Christ's incarnation brought things to light in the Old Testament that had been hidden 
under the Old Covenant, namely the inclusion of non-Jews in the chosen people of God. In the letter to the Galatians, we're told, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And later in the same chapter, it's written in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when this is addressed, O seed of Abraham, his servant, this is addressed to us. At the end of the letter to Galatians, Paul even calls the church there the Israel of God. Of course, Israel was the name God gave to Jacob in Psalm or in Genesis 35. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says of the church, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The point is, this psalm was written to those who are Abraham's seed by faith, which included David and those of his generation who believed, but also includes those who believe today. This psalm was written for believers. It was written for us to instruct us in the worship of God. Tyndale commented on this psalm and said, Every Christian belongs to this family whose history and calling we now inherit. Here are are the early chapters of our own story. We can sing its miraculous beginning with more than a spectator's interest. So with more than a spectator's interest, let's turn our attention to the first five verses and these nine imperatives that we find here. Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. The first command here is to give thanks. Now, I have a library at home. Those of you who have been in our home have seen my library. I have a whole room filled with books, many, most of them, theological books. And I have a whole section on worship, a number of books on the subject of worship. I pulled them all down off the shelf this week, and I thumbed through them, and I looked at the indexes in the back, and to my amazement, not one had an entry in the index for thanks or thanksgiving. That astonished me. Scripture gives a central place to thanksgiving in the worship of the church, and none of the books on worship that I had even made mention of it. Now, in the Scriptures, we see thanks as part of God's people worshiping Him in three different ways. First, There's a sacrifice of thanksgiving that's detailed in Leviticus 7. It was part of the temple and tabernacle worship and the offering of sacrifices. Second, there are many psalms of thanksgiving throughout the Psalter. Psalm 105 here, Psalm 106 and 107 both begin with thanks. And there are many other psalms that incorporate thanksgiving to God as part of worship. Throughout the Psalms, we are told to proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving in Psalm 26, 7, to give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name in Psalm 30, verse 4, to offer to God thanksgiving in Psalm 50, verse 14, to magnify him with thanksgiving in Psalm 69, 30, to come before his presence with thanksgiving in Psalm 95, 2, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and be thankful to him in Psalm 100, verse 4. To give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. In Psalm 106, 1. 
And Psalm 147 explicitly commands that we sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Throughout the Old Testament, we see singing with thanksgiving as the primary means of thankfulness in the worship of God. But in the New Testament, it's a little different. In the New Testament, thanksgiving is most frequently associated with the act of prayer. The church prays thankfully over their meals in 1 Corinthians 10.30. Following the Lord's example, they pray thankfully at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.24. They pray thankfully for God's salvation of His people in Colossians 1.12. They pray thankfully for each other in Ephesians 1.16, for financial offerings of others in 2 Corinthians 9.15, and thankfully giving thanks to God for all things in Ephesians 5.20. Thanksgiving for God's people should be a matter both of prayer and song. It's a primary component of our worship. Christians really should be the most thankful people in the world. God has saved us. He's forgiven our sins, cleansed us by the shed blood of Christ, called us His own, that we might be His people and He might be our God. We should be the most thankful of all people, and God is the one to whom we should be giving thanks for all His goodness and mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we are told to call upon His name. We're to be thankful for His past mercy to us, but also dependent upon Him for future mercy. We are to call upon His name in prayer. And what name is that by which we are to call upon Him? Well, the name of Jesus, which is the only name by which men are saved. But also, we've been instructed to call upon our Heavenly Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. The Spirit teaches us to pray in Romans 8.15, saying, Abba, Father. We've been adopted as His sons and daughters. We can call the Almighty God our Father. He is our heavenly Father, for His throne is in heaven and the earth is His footstool. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. And so we, we call upon Him for mercy and comfort in our times of need and despair. He is the Father of glory in Ephesians 1.17. And so we call upon Him to reveal His glory to us in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, He is the one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all, Ephesians 4, 6. And so we call upon our God, our Father in heaven, who is above all things, to watch over His church in the world. He is the Father of spirits, in Hebrews 12, 9, who disciplines those He loves. And so we call upon Him with respect and submission he is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning in James 1.17. And so we call upon Him with confidence in His unchanging goodness and holiness. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in 1 Peter 1.3. And so we call upon Him for salvation. 
when we gather as a church to worship the Heavenly Father, we have much to be thankful for. But we also have much to be dependent upon our God for, and therefore we have many reasons to call upon Him in prayer. Third, we are commanded to make known His deeds among the peoples. Now, this is exactly what the disciples did in Acts 2 that led to such explosive growth in the church. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to proclaim, it says, the wonderful works of God. And the crowd was amazed. Yeah, some mocked. But so many people heard the wonderful works of God proclaimed in in a way that they could understand that it says 3,000 people believed and were baptized that day. The disciples made known God's deeds among the people, and a crowd gathered. And Peter took the opportunity to preach a sermon to them. The purpose of making known his deeds among the people is that others might hear what God has done for us and forsake their idols and join us in worshiping our Heavenly Father. All of this taken together is one reason that we are convinced from Scripture that missions, making known His deeds among the peoples, is properly speaking the work of the church and that it is best focused on the planting of churches. Missions is the multiplication of worship. And since worship is the task of the church, so is missions. Missions that is disconnected from the life of the church and disconnected from the purpose of the church. Missions that is not actively pursuing the goal of planting and growing local churches is missions that has experienced what we would call mission drift. Hospitals are wonderful things, and they provide help to people who are in need. Doctors and nurses do needed work, and they may do so as Christians, but they are not, properly speaking, missionaries. The work of missions is the multiplication of churches as gatherings of those who worship Christ by means of proclaiming among the nations His wonderful deeds. The fourth holy exercise we are commanded to as a church is to sing praises to our God in verse 2. Sing to Him, sing psalms to him. Now, this is what most often comes to mind when we speak about worship. If you are out somewhere this afternoon in town and you bump into another believer in the store and you ask them, how was worship this morning? There's a high degree of likelihood their answer will assume you were asking about the music at the church they attended. But as you may have already noticed, worship is about much more than simply the music. But it does include singing, the singing of praises to our God. In Acts 2, it says that they were praising God together. That is to say, they were singing psalms to Him. The singing of the gathered church is a means of corporately expressing ourselves, our emotions, our praises to our Heavenly Father. Both Ephesians and Colossians instruct the churches to sing together. Ephesians actually ties the singing to thanksgiving, says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, 
giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Singing, making melody with thanksgiving. Colossians uses similar language, but ties singing to the word of God and teaching, saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16. There are several common elements between these two passages and our text here in Psalm 105. First, note that we're to sing together, not alone. We're speaking to one another in song. We're teaching and admonishing one another in song. This is corporate worship. This is not something you do in your car by yourself on the way to work tomorrow morning. Nothing wrong with that. But what Scripture is commanding here is that when the church is gathered together, we are to sing. Secondly, note that this worship through song is to be heartfelt. We are to make melody in our hearts, to sing with grace in our hearts. And in Psalm 105, verse 2 doesn't mention our hearts, but verse 3 does. Glory in His holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Our worship is to be sincere and from the heart, not just lip service. We're not just supposed to come and sing words and not mean them. God despises that sort of hypocritical worship. We're supposed to sing from the heart, from our inner person, with thankfulness and joy, praising our Creator Third, I would have you note that all three of these passages mention singing psalms. No matter how you interpret these passages, there's no denying the fact that the church is commanded to sing the psalms. The church in America has strayed from our heritage of psalm singing, and I believe it impoverishes our worship. If we look at the the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Scriptures, The largest category of them are lament. How many of our hymns are songs of lament? How many modern worship songs are songs of lament? Some of the psalms express sorrow and loss, others joy and thanksgiving, still others hope and delight. The richness of the psalms is that they address every emotion and every circumstance in which we would find ourselves as humans on a fallen planet earth trying to worship our God, I think we've lost something very valuable to the church when we stopped singing the Psalms. Did you know the first book ever published in America was the Bay Psalm Book? It was published in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1640. It was a setting of the Psalms to music for use in the churches of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Scottish church still actually sings the Psalms They typically used the the Psalter that was translated in 1650 by the Westminster Assembly. Many Presbyterians, even in this country today, still sing the Psalms. Unfortunately, many churches have ceased to sing the Psalms. But the Psalms are songs of worship written by God for His people to sing in worship to God. And that is the fourth thing that we might note about these passages, that they all make a point of saying that when we sing, we are to sing to God. 
not simply about God, but to God. We are to make melody in your heart to the Lord and sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Psalm 105 instructs that we are to sing to him, sing psalms to him. Charles Spurgeon offers some helpful advice on this issue of singing to God. He says, take care that your singing is unto him and not merely for the sake of the music or to delight the ears of others. Singing is so delightful an exercise that it is a pity so much of it should be wasted upon trifles or worse than trifles. Oh, you who can emulate the nightingale and almost rival the angels, we do most earnestly pray that your hearts may be renewed so that your floods of melody may be poured out at your master and redeemer's feet. Our worship in song is for God. It's not for the person sitting next to us in the pew. We sing for an audience of one. We sing for our Lord. Worship is about making much of Christ, not much of ourselves. My dad was a big believer in this. The Psalms tell us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He was good at making a joyful noise. He didn't really care if other people thought he was out of tune. He was singing to the Lord. Let us be careful that when we sing, we sing to the Lord. Yes, we are mutually edified as a congregation when we join our voices together to sing. But we are to sing from the heart to God, not for our neighbor. Singing is an act of worship. Fifth, our worship, it says in the second half of verse 2, is to talk of all his wondrous works. Now you might wonder, how does this differ from the end of verse 1 that said we are to make known his deeds among the peoples. Well, I think the difference is the context. Verse 1 speaks of doing so among the peoples or among the nations, multiplying worship as mission. But verse 2 doesn't speak of the nations, but of the congregation. It's in the same context as the singing. We are to talk amongst ourselves of God's wondrous works. That is, we are to preach and teach the word in the church. When we sing, we sing to God. But when we preach, we preach of God to his people. We're to talk of his wondrous works, his works of creation and redemption, his wondrous works of judgment and mercy, his wondrous works of providence and comfort, his wondrous works in the giving of the law and the gospel. We're to preach the whole counsel of God, leaving none of it out. Now, this doesn't mean that every sermon or every lesson in CLA must include everything that God has ever said. That would be impossible and impractical. But it does mean that over the course of time, we're not to shy away from certain topics. We're not to focus just on the ones that we like and ignore the ones we dislike or that make us uncomfortable. We are to preach the whole counsel of God. And we have to understand that preaching and teaching in the church are processes, not events. We love events. We like to look for the big event, the conference, or the one sermon like the one Peter preached at Pentecost that results in 3,000 people getting saved. And, you know, when we think about the Christian life, justification happens in a moment, often at the hearing of one sermon 
Sometimes it happens in a moment after hearing multiple sermons. Justification, which is an act of God's unfettered grace in which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. That happens in a moment, in an instant, when the sinner believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He died and he rose again. And I can trust him for my salvation. We call that being born again or getting saved. That happens in an instant, in a moment in time. But once that happens, we begin a process of what is known as sanctification. The sanctification is a work of God's grace in which he renews us in our whole person, our mind, our body, our heart, our spirit, making us into the image of his son, enabling us to resist temptation, to die to sin, and to live to righteousness. And sanctification is a process that happens over the course of time. It happens over months and years through the reading of the scriptures and the preaching and the teaching of the word. Derek Thomas in his book on worship, says, God has given us the A, B, and C of how we are to grow as Christians and advance as a Christian community. Going to church, singing hymns and psalms, reading scripture, listening to sermons, engaging in prayer and receiving the sacraments. These are the ordinary means of grace. Now, when he, he talks about the ordinary means of grace, he doesn't mean that they're mundane. What he means is that they are ordinary means by which God administers his grace to us. They're ordinary because they consist of ordinary things. Human speech, water, bread, and juice. They're ordinary because they occur regularly, over and over again, every week. It's preaching and teaching the word of God with human language, speaking the wondrous works of God. It's to be employed regularly in the life of the church, and it is used by God to effect change in the lives of his people over time. You may have the occasional aha moment where you go, oh, now I get that. But sanctification is a process that happens over the course of your entire lifetime. That's why we keep preaching and teaching every week. If, if Paul and Brian and I got up and, and preached one sermon and then expected you to put it into practice and we saw that you didn't and went, well, I tried. I'm done. I told them. They didn't listen. That's not what God has commanded for his church. He has commanded us to preach and to teach regularly over and over again, expecting that change will happen in people's lives over the course of time. In his book, The Living Church, John Stott defined Christian worship as a response to revelation. He goes on to say, Hence the reading and preaching of God's word in public worship, far from being an alien intrusion into it, are rather indispensable aspects of it. It is the word of God which evokes the worship of God. 
This is why we are to talk of his wondrous works every time we gather as a church. Because it is the scriptures read, preached, and taught that invoke and move our spirits to worship with thanksgiving and with joy and with dependence upon the God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. But as we do all of this preaching and teaching and singing and praying, in other words, when the church gathers to worship, we are to do so not with a sense of boredom or resignation. Well, here we go again. No, we're to do this with delight. Verse 3 says that we are to glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Glory is an interesting word here. We often use it as a noun, right? We talk about the glory of the Lord. And in that case, what we mean is the, the display of his praiseworthiness, his holiness, his perfection. Scripture talks about the glory of the Lord filling the temple. When the angels announced the birth of Christ, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. The word literally means to radiate or to shine. So what does it mean for us to glory in the Lord? What does it mean when glory is a verb that we're supposed to engage in? Well, the dictionary definition of glory as a verb means to take great pleasure in something. So we might think about it like this. If we think about the glory of the Lord as shining as the light of His purity, His holiness, His righteousness, His perfection, then to glory in the Lord might be something like basking in the light of His perfection, basking in the light of His holiness. It means that our worship is something like sunbathing, only instead of soaking in the rays of light emanating from that ball of gas in the sky that we call the sun, we're to soak up or to bask in the radiance of God's purity, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, His mercy, His grace. Doesn't that sound delightful? To bask in the radiance of God's glory sounds like a pleasurable experience. Our corporate worship should be pleasurable. It should be a joy to us. Next line of the psalm says, Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. This is the seventh imperative in our text, to rejoice from the heart. Charles Spurgeon has a way with words. He says that this text gives us a permit to rejoice. Not like getting a burn permit. This is a permit to rejoice. It's a matter of joy. We have an amazing, wonderful Heavenly Father. We can gather together as His people with a, a new family that He has given us to sing His praises, to learn from His Word, to declare His deeds and His wondrous works, to bask in the light of His perfection. It's a cause for rejoicing in the heart. This is why Paul tells the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Always, in all things, rejoice. God is at work. Our worship should be reverent. We are worshiping the Almighty God, but it should also be joy-filled. We are worshiping our God. We are His people, redeemed by His blood, called by His name. 
Just as we have ample cause for thanksgiving, so too we have ample cause for rejoicing. Notice that it says the hearts of those who seek the Lord should rejoice. And then verse 4 continues saying, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Now there's been a lot of talk in the last decade or so about seekers. There's an entire movement called the seeker-sensitive movement, and we talk about seeker-sensitive churches. And in response, many have said, well, there are no seekers. And they quote Romans 3, 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Well, if we're speaking of unbelievers, unregenerate, we're true, we're correct. In our unregenerate state, our hearts are hard towards God. We don't seek Him. He seeks us. And when He performs spiritual heart surgery and gives us new hearts, then we begin to seek Him. Once, once He does that, we become worshipers. We become seekers. First, it says we are to seek the Lord. We're to seek His presence. We want to be with Him. We want to be among His congregation, worshiping Him. We want to enter his presence with thanksgiving, as the Psalms say. Then it says we are to seek his strength. We're weak creatures. I slipped and fell this morning and hurt my knee. I'm weak. We're weak in so many ways. This is why Scripture tells us to run to our strong tower, who is Christ. Remember what he told the Apostle Paul? When Paul complained of the weakness of his flesh, Christ said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the apostle responded, saying, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. We are to seek his strength. We seek him, we seek his strength, and finally we seek his face. Not only do we desire His presence, we want God to smile upon us as a, a pleased Heavenly Father. Think of a young child who just can't wait to get his parents' attention, to see his dad smile at him. We are to seek God's person, His presence with reverence, to seek His power in our need, and to seek His pleasure with hope. And finally, we are instructed to remember in verse 5. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. I've said this before, but truly my job when I stand up here and preach or when Brian or Paul stands up to preach or to teach, our job is not to say anything new or innovative, but simply to remind you of truths that have been taught for 2,000 years in church, Christian churches. Sure, the person who has just come to faith, comes to church, they're going to hear a lot of stuff they don't know, and they're going to learn things about God and about the Christian life. And that's a delight to learn those things. You should learn things from the ministry of the Word in the church but you should also be reminded, reminded of what God has done, reminded of the gospel regularly. We are forgetful creatures, easily distracted by the cares of this world. 
we, we forget the gospel. We forget the good news of Jesus. He, he died and rose again. That's not just for that one moment in time when we come to faith. That applies throughout our entire lives. We rest in his finished work. We trust in him. We need to be reminded of the gospel and its application on a regular basis. In remembering the work of Christ, our faith is made stronger. Our thanksgiving is deepened. Our praise becomes more heartfelt. Our rejoicing more enthusiastic. Our devotion more zealous. And our love more impassioned. As human beings, we are created by God to worship. And so we do. All people are worshipers. The question isn't if you'll worship. The question is who or what will you worship? Will you worship yourself? Will you worship money, pleasure, nature? Who will you worship? John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. Our hearts constantly are pumping out new things that we can worship, getting attached to things they shouldn't be attached to in ways that they shouldn't be attached. But as Christians, we are to worship God and worship Him alone. Jesus responded to the temptation of Satan With these words, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. We are his people and he is our God. He is our creator, our savior, our redeemer, our Lord and our king. He is our all in all. So when we gather as a church, we are gathered by him, we are gathered to him, and we are gathered for him. Our gathering is an act of worship. Worship that is to be marked by thanksgiving, prayer, praise, proclamation, rejoicing, seeking, remembering, and most of all, by basking in the light of His glory. When the world ceases, missions will cease. Evangelism will cease. Benevolence will cease. But worship will continue forever. Let's pray.